Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, readers and writers, welcome to this episode 325 of Charlotte Readers Podcast Beyond 300. I'm here with, uh, of course, my co-host Sarah Archer and Hannah LaRue, and we've got a great lineup for you today. Yeah, we're going to start out first with an exciting author feature of New York Times bestselling author Craig Johnson and his novel Helen Back, which Publishers Weekly calls Solid. They say Longmire fans will relish Johnson's new insights into Walt's character. Next, we have a two-minute tip from Charlotte Litt and Paul Reale called Adding Detail to Your Writing, Part 1. And uh, we've also got uh, a writing topic discussion today with a teenage author, Sydney Horn, author of Shattered World, uh, coming out this year. And, and the title of her blog post is Cautious Creativity. Then we're going to finish up today with our reading recommendations, book pitches, community and listener engagement, and telling you some of what's coming up in the next episode. Yeah, but first we've got uh, What's Up with the Podcast Book. So we normally do What's Up Host, but we're doing What's Up with the Podcast Book. So uh, <laughs> if you hadn't heard, uh, listeners, we've created uh, eight uh, quote books in what we're calling the Right Quote Series for release in 2023. These books cover a variety of topics uh, that uh, were discussed on the first four and a half years of the podcast, and we are really excited to share these quotes. Yeah, we are. We've been working hard on this series, and we're super excited to share it with you. Um, there's lots of inspirational and practical quotes in there. We've pulled them from over 500 podcast interviews with authors who are hardworking, award-winning, New York Times bestsellers, working in all sorts of different genres, coming from over 33 U.S. states and five different countries. Yeah, it's a really amazing collection of wisdom. I mean, there's so many great golden nuggets, I like to call them. I feel like that's a great way to put a lot of this, these inspirational words from so many great authors. I mean, we have people like David Baldacci, um, Steve Berry, Lisa Jewell, John Hart, Ron Rash, CJ Box, Craig Johnson, Wiley Cash. I could keep going on and on and on, um, but so many good ones. A lot of North Carolina favorites too, like Charlie Lovett, Judy Goldman, um, and a lot of other great folks in there too. Kathy Pickens, David Joy, and many more. Um, all the authors who were fe featured on the podcast prior to January 31st, 2023, appear in one or more of the eight books. Yeah, and each book also comes with a forward by... Uh, Sarah or Hannah. Thank you, Sarah and Hannah, for those. And uh, also a reflection by me, because uh, why not? I mean, you know, after after four and a half years, uh, I need to reflect <laughs> on something. So I decided I'd reflect on the quotes in, in each book, and uh, and I did that. Uh, it's really what I learned uh, that helped me write, publish, and market uh, my first full-length novel, Daily Decorations, and I wanted to share this advice with others. Yeah, and if you're interested in pre-ordering, all of the ebooks in the series are up now for pre-order. We'll be showing links for those so you can find them easily. They're up at your favorite online vendors. And then we're also going to be making print books in the future, so look out for that too. And get this, the first ebook will be free. That is not a glitch. You heard me. I said free. We all love free things, so you don't have any excuse to not order it online. And when you do, please write a review so we can help spread the word. Yeah, I love that uh, free uh, you know, it's not, it's, it's really not hard to sell free stuff, folks. Uh, no. you know, and, uh, <laughs> it's the easiest way to do it. <laughs> really good point. Do give us a day, because, and we might talk you through this at some point, or at least what we had to go through. Uh, we learned some things about putting books uh, up for uh, sale uh, when the book is being put up for pre-order. 
as free in the and the re well i'll just put it in a nutshell you can't do it so we we had to figure out a way around that so the book will release on february 6th we're going to reduce it to free on february 7th and if, if you click on these links and it's not free yet wait a couple of days uh and it'll be free and then you can uh download the first book uh, uh which is going to be on the writing life let me just tell you this other thing too is if you support us on patreon um we're going to actually give you these books. I mean, for every month that you're going to be a supporter with us, you're going to get one of these books free. Um, and so if you join Patreon, not only are you going to get these books free, these eight books in the series, but you're also going to have access to 150 exclusive audio episodes with many of the authors who appear in these eight books. It's really a win-win. Yeah. And so the books are for pre-order now, but each month starting in March, we're going to have a segment on the show here where we talk about the book of the month and we'll tell you what the topic of the book is and share some of our favorite quotes for it. So look out for that. It's going to be a lot of fun to talk about. Yeah. And you can expect more details about this series in our newsletter, which you can sign up for at the podcast website at any point. Yeah. So today you can actually order, I said, make sure it's free. It'll be a couple of days, but it will be free. And then you can order it, uh, and get started with the right quote series. I feel like these quotes are so relatable as I was reading through them, and they really reveal what it feels like to be a writer. Here's just a few quotes to whet your appetite, like they did for us. Um, we'll start with Craig Nova, who said, in the best of times, nothing can compare, and in the worst of times, it's totally miserable. <laughs> Thank you, Craig. <laughs> and then we have John Hart. He said, if you don't put your soul into it, if you don't bleed for it, you're kidding yourself. You're not a writer. You're a dilettante. Then Anthony Abbott said, writing is not about writing necessarily. Writing is about living. And the more deeply and fully you live, the more you're able to write. Yeah, okay. So we found, uh, you know, that all these writers um, were really, I mean, inspirational to us. Uh, and that's why we went back and did this and put this together. It's been about a seven to eight to nine month project, but uh, it's coming together. We're looking forward to it and uh, hope you will uh, enjoy uh, free book one on the writing life and uh, that you will, uh, you know, by doing this, by the way, you're going to help support the podcast and you're going to learn from our many talented author guests by, by getting the book. Hey, let's jump now to what's up with the co-host. Uh, what's up, Hannah? <laughs> um, gosh, let's see. What is up with me? I feel like I always kind of blank at this part. <laughs> I'm like, what have I been doing recently? <laughs> Um, well, I do have some exciting news. I have started back into my book, my reading world, which has been awesome. And special shout out to Libro FM. Um, I feel like I've been boycotting audiobooks for a really long time just because I like to hold paper. I, I like smell books and stuff like that. So I feel like I was kind of boycotting it, but I've jumped in and started listening to a ton of books on there, which has been great. Just like um, so I can sort of multitask as I do. So that's been really fun. Um, also, I'm kind of planning out events for work over the next several months, which is a lot of fun for me. And I kind of I'm glad to be back in this hectic uh, PR world. So that's been great. And other than that, just kind of hanging out with my baby. <laughs> All that good stuff. What about you guys? Um, well, for me, so I recently spoke to a library group from the Charlotte Mecklenburg Library. Um, so that was a lot of fun. I got to talk to them about screenwriting. And um, I'm also preparing right now to teach a three-session screenwriting course for Charlotte Lit for next month. The first session is on February 7th, which I think is the day that this episode comes out. So if you're hearing this now, 
um, it's too late to register, <laughs> but hopefully <laughs> I'll be doing that that evening and it will hopefully go well. Um, also on February 9th, I'm going to be a guest on a radio and podcast show called Fika with Vicky, um, talking about books and writing. I, I was on her show a couple of years ago and she's an awesome host, a lot of fun to talk with. We got to talk about um, fiction and screenwriting and poetry. She kind of loves all of it. So I'm looking forward to being back with her. And I think we're actually going to be recording it live, if I'm not mistaken. So I'll try to share Ooh. the link in our show notes in case anyone is interested in listening in or participating. Um, and yeah, like Hannah, just keeping up with the audiobooks and the paper books and the Kindle books and <laughs> all of the books. Yeah. <laughs> dabbling, yeah. dabbling in different media. <laughs> How about yeah, you, Landis? And in fairness, you're helping me uh, proof all the. Uh, books in the right quote series as we pull all that together. So uh, we, we've got them up for pre-order, but there's still a lot left to be done to, to get them finalized. Appreciate you. Well, for me, um, in addition to working on the right quote series um, and the podcast here, uh, I, I was recently invited to participate in an upcoming uh, book life publishers weekly forum that is going to be on February 25th of this month. Uh, it'll be uh, online. Everything's online. Um, Authors from all over the place can talk about a lot of different topics. We'll put this information in the uh, in the show notes. We've got some links and uh, also in the newsletter when it comes out. But uh, it'll be a forum for uh, self-published authors and those looking to explore uh, the, as they say, the various paths and the ever-evolving, expanding world of self-publishing. I think uh, I'm in a breakout session. Uh, I think I'm talking about reviews and contests, what's in it for you with another author who uh, also has been through that uh, world of submitting to contests and and uh, being fortunate to win awards for their books. So yeah, that'll be fun. We'll talk about that. And there's a lot of other, not br only breakout sessions, but other sessions as well. So we'll have more about that. Um, but speaking of Libro FM that uh, Hannah brought up, uh, let's hear uh, something about them. And, this, and then we're going to jump toward our first interview. We have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them, and when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER and claim your free audiobook. And, uh, this is the uh, author interview feature time, and uh, I'm really excited about this uh, uh, because uh, this is the second time we've had Craig Johnson on the show. Uh, I loved uh, his series on Netflix, one of the lo longest-watched uh, series on Netflix, um, and uh, his book this time that we talked about is Helen Back. It's uh, the 18th novel in the New York Times bestselling Longmire series. Tell us uh, about Craig, uh, Sarah. Sure. So um, Craig, like you mentioned, is the New York Times bestselling author of the Longmire Mysteries, which is the basis for the Netflix series. I have some family members who are obsessed with that series, so <laughs> I know it's great. Um, <laughs> he's won the Western Writers of America Spur Award for Fiction and the Mountain and Plains Independent Booksellers Association's Reading the West Book Award for Fiction. His novella Spirit of Steamboat was the first one book Wyoming sele selection, and he lives in Ucross, Wyoming, with a population of 26 I think they've I think they've gone up. I think it was population twenty five the last time he was on the podcast. So wow, somebody must wow. have had a baby out there. Big event <laughs> out there. <laughs> they must all like know each other very well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like. Exactly. So uh, yeah, uh, and Hannah, tell us a little bit about this particular book. 
Yeah, so this book, while continuing the tradition of action-packed plotting and suspenseful storytelling, this is Craig's most mystical and supernatural thriller yet, which I love that genre, so that's exciting. Um, It's reminiscent of an episode of The Twilight Zone. The reader will constantly ask themselves, what's real and what's imagined? And that is true, because uh, I've read many of his books, and this is the first time that uh, you feel like Walt Longmire is sort of between worlds, and uh, in fact, he is. And uh, he can't figure out who these people are that uh, in the town that uh, he thinks were once dead. And anyway, he, he's fighting some imaginary, but it does harken back to some true history, which we're going to talk about in the episode. Uh, and he's gotten some uh, good uh, good press for it. What he writes there? Yeah, um, the Associated Press said, as usual with this series, the characters are well drawn and the suspenseful plot takes some surprising twists. Yeah, and it does that. So, all right, with uh, let, let's get on with it then. Let's hear the uh, interview with uh, Craig Johnson. Craig Johnson, welcome back to Charlotte Reader's Podcast. Hey, Landis, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Yeah, so how's life in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming? <laughs> Pretty good. That's that's actually why it is I'm here, because it's in the middle of nowhere. Like that, uh, You know, it, it's funny because, you know, we leave here, like that, and they're, they're actual traffic. <laughs> in places like it and, uh, and lines and, and things like that. And, uh, you know, we just got back, uh, we were in uh, visiting uh, our, our daughter who is a lawyer in Philadelphia, like and our yeah. granddaughter. And, uh, we were astounded like, that there are lines and traffic and things like that, you know, here in Ucross, Wyoming population 25, we don't have those type of things like that. So it's kind of nice. It's, I mean, obviously, you know, you make, you know, certain allowances like that whenever you live in a place like we live like that, but, you know, in the final analysis, it's really kind of a nice, quiet place, you know, for the focus of the writing, which is, you know, where I spend most of my time, like that is, uh, is writing. That's, that's what I do like that. And uh, it's a pretty great place for that. Well, now I think I have a hint as to why Katie uh, is a lawyer and uh, why Philadelphia figured in some of your books. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. I th- the more people find out about my personal life, the less impressed they're going to be with my writing ability. Um, you know, I, I, you know, it's like being here in Wyoming. People sometimes ask, they'll say, well, do you ever worry about running out of ideas? And I'm like, no, I live in Wyoming. There are more ideas than I'm going to be able to write before I die, for goodness sake. Like it, but uh, I think that's, you know, that's just part of the process. You know, I mean, there's that great quote by Wallace Stegner where he says the greatest piece of fiction ever written is the disclaimer at the beginning of every book that says nobody in this book is based off of anybody alive or dead, you know, and, uh, and what a crock that is like that. I mean, that's, that's really kind of your job to go find interesting people and, and, you know, populate your books with them like that. It does an awful lot of your work for you. And, uh, you know, it's kind of fun like that. It, I, I haven't run into a lot of problems with that. You know, generally when I first started out, I would change a lot of people's names and everything like that. But, um, generally they would get mad when you change their names like that to protect the innocent like that mostly people want you to use their real name like that i think if they had the opportunity they'd have you put your phone their phone number and address in there so that you know people could contact them after they read the book but uh but yeah i i think that that's you know that's just just par for the course like it's just one of those things that's you know uh, one of the joys of doing what it is that we do yeah exactly well you last appeared on the podcast on our 100th episode in april of 2020 we're now up to 324 episodes, and you've now published three more novels, The Next to Last Stand, Daughter of the Morning Star, and your most recent novel that we're going to talk about today, Helen Back. And before we get to Helen Back, uh, talk just a little bit about what keeps you going. You're now 18 novels and counting in the Walt Longmire series. 
Um, I don't know. I mean, it's it's it, it does vary. I think. Look at. I mean, you know, I was you know talking to like you know talk to a number of my more literary uh, uh, authors. Look at you know Amor Tolls. Look at a number of others. Look at who are friends. Look at and you know for them it's a little bit different. Like that because they'll work on like one book. You know, for you know like uh, anywhere from like you know two to seven eight years. You know, for one book. And uh, I don't know. I mean, for me, I, I started off, you know, with Walt um, in the cold dish, which was, I think, 2005. And it, it really wasn't supposed to be a series of novels. It was just supposed to be a standalone novel. And um, by the time I got done with it, like that uh, Viking Penguin had picked it up like that. And they were the ones that kind of took me aside and said, hey, we really do like these characters. We really like this world. Is there any way you'd think about, you know, doing this as more of a... Uh, you know, a series like that. And um, I had to think about it, you know, because I wasn't so sure like that, that I could write a book a year. You know, that's, that's really kind of daunting, you know, when you think about it. And uh, I mean, I'd only written one, you know, and so <laughs> I didn't even know if I could write another one like that. And so it was really kind of dicey as far as that was concerned like that. But I, I thought, you know, well, you know, I really did enjoy these characters and I really did enjoy this world. So if I was going to be able to write a series, that would probably be the best way to be able to do it. And uh, so I kicked in, like getting started in on that second book. And what I discovered was, is that that's probably the best situation for me. Um, I need deadlines, you know, and I need, you know, to have a workload, like at, to, to, you know, to, to, to process, you know, the information like that. And uh, I, I don't know, I think I would get, I would kind of wander a little bit if I, if I had seven years to put out a book, you know, I, I'd be a little bit lost. Um, I think like that. And so I, I think I need those deadlines of being able to do a book a year. And, uh, and yeah, it's been, you know, 19 years and running and uh, I haven't run into any serious problems as far as like, you know, coming up with material or, uh, or enjoying it. I mean, I think that's another, you know, major aspect of the process. If you don't enjoy what it is that you're doing, then you've got a problem on your hands like that, because if that joy leaves the work, then it really becomes work. I mean, I'm a firm believer of that old proverb that like, you know, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life like that. And, uh, you know, every once in a while, like I'll be up there writing in the loft and just it dawns on me that, my God, I'm making a living doing this. You know, this is really kind of outrageous, you know, when you get right down to it, you know, but I don't know what other work I'd be fit for, you know, so it's probably a good thing that I do have this to do. Like that. So, uh, and, you know, and then this book particularly, Helen Back, you know, uh, a book that was very different, you know, from a lot of the other books. You know, this was something I, I've been wanting to do for a while like that, you know, but I had to get to the right point in the right place, you know, in Walt's life and the right storyline like it, you know, for it to be a viable uh, novel like that. And so this one was something very, very different like that. And, uh, you know, fortunately, like that, I mean, there were some people like that that didn't respond to it like that, but the majority of people did respond to it. They kind of go out on the diving board with me, you know, and uh, that gives you the freedom like that to really do something a little bit different. I mean, I think if I was stuck um, in one of those formulaic kind of situations where I had to write the exact same type of book um, over and over and over again, year after year after year, then I'm afraid the joy of writing, you know, might, might flee at that point in time. And uh, I would have a hard time. I would have a hard time continuing on if it was just that formula type of, um, I guess what I tend to refer to as grocery store checkout books, you know, which is, you know, not to say anything <laughs> bad about that, you know, because there's a lot to be said, you know, for escapist literature or, you know, for people who, you know, read things, you know, that they don't really particularly, you know, want to be challenged in many ways. Like they just want the same old characters doing the same old things in the same old places and all of that. But uh, I, I knew early on that that was just not going to be 
you know, the kind of writer that I wanted to be or what I aspired to with it. And, uh, and this one was, like I said, a little bit different. And, um, that was a joy like that because it, uh, it allowed me an opportunity to kind of get in Walt's head and spend a, a long period of time there. Um, and, yeah. uh, you know, give an insight into that character, um, in ways that I hadn't done, you know, for like, you know, 18 years. And yeah. that can be difficult. You know, that can be a little bit tough like that because you, know, you spend that much time writing about a character. You can exercise an awful lot of the aspects and facets of their character and get a little tiresome after a while. So I think you have yeah. to have that freedom, I think, like a, to, to bust out and do something a little different. Well, let, let's let's dive off the diving board just a second because I, I enjoyed Helen Back. Uh, it was a very different book from the many Lawnmower books you've written that I've read. You still have a mystery. Uh, you've always kind of played on the spirit world some extent, but this one went deep into the supernatural. And Walt is normally a man uh, who's on a mission, but here he sort of forgets who he is and he's rudderless. And at times you shift to third person, which is something you rarely have done. Uh, you are always been in Walt's head. So let's talk about uh, this, uh, what led to such a different book. And uh, and then we're going to get into the what is for the book, but uh, just sort of what led to this. And you already mentioned sort of how some fans reacted, but hey, if you're not going to be able to you know, push the envelope a little bit. What fun are you going to have, right? Exactly, exactly. Like, and uh, you know, and, and I also don't expect you know everyone to love you know and have every book be their absolute favorite. Um, to be honest, you know, I've I've had you know some some you know some of those types of responses for every single book that I've written. Um, there are going to be some people that you know, that that go to the books for certain things, like a, right. you know, some people that go there um, you know, for the mechanics of a mystery. There's some people that go there for uh, the joy of like, you know, the relationships and the character development and those type of things. There's some people that read them like yeah, for the history, the insights, you know, into angles of history that maybe haven't been covered quite so much. Some go there for the humor, all these different things. Well, there's a variance, you know, in all of the books, you know, with all of those things like that. I mean, if I had the same amount of the same things in every single book, then they would become extraordinarily formulaic. So it, it's important to me like to be able to do something a little bit different with each mm -hmm. one. And, you know, that, that freedom is part of that creation process. If you start feeling kind of hemmed in, you know, where you have to do certain things certain ways all the time, then, you know, you're really kind of closing an awful lot of doors to yourself and it really makes it a little bit difficult. I, I wanted to touch upon, you know, that one key element that you mentioned. Yeah, this is absolutely the very first time that I've written in the third person. All of the books have been written in the first person with Walt. Like they're all in Walt's head, you know, in uh, the entirety of those books. Like I've never once stepped outside of Walt's head like that, but I suddenly found myself in a situation where Walt was wasn't available for some sequences in this book. And so it actually did, you know, provide me with an opportunity like to, uh, especially with characters like, you know, Henry Standing Bear and Vic Moretti, like that, you know, who are obviously highly invested in this investigation to try and find out where Walt is and what it is exactly that's happened to him. And, um, that was unique. That was a little scary, like, at, you know, writing those third person you know, portions. But it also gave me an opportunity sometimes to, to write things that maybe I'd wanted to write for 19 years that I never had the opportunity to actually write. Um, and then the other aspect of it, like as far as like you know, the spirituality and mysticism aspects of it. Um, yeah, that was, you know, that was a key element as to what was going on. And that that element has been in the books ever since the very first book, The Cold Dish. Um, so anybody that was surprised, you know, by that, that there would be this spirituality and this mysticism you know, hasn't been paying very close attention for the last right. 19 years because that's actually been going on for almost two decades now. Like, and uh, yeah, we definitely, you know, pushed the envelope on this one like that. But I think it kind of needed to be done. 
Um, you know, whenever it is we started talking, you know, in uh, Daughter of the Morning Star uh, about the Eboetse Heo Mese, like uh, this entity um, that was out there that might be in some way responsible for the facets of um, these murdered missing indigenous women, like uh, then you, know, you really kind of had to see where that was going to go. And uh, in, the, in the previous book, in Daughter of the Morning Star, um, it's a lot more straightforward of a mystery novel, but there are still facets by the time you get to the end of the book where you do kind of wonder, you know, there, there's something else at play here. And even though Walt is like, you know, he, he's just not a, not a firm believer in any of that. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a creature of empirical data. He is a detective, like that, and everything is about facts. You know, it's nothing but the facts, as far as he's concerned, like that. And so, to kind of take him off that diving board and into that world, you know, where he's not sure of himself, that was something strange, like that. And uh, then for him to be in a situation where he wakes up, you know, out there on the streets of this little town in Montana, Fort Pratt, you know, in a snowy night, and uh, doesn't remember who or what or why he's there. I mean, he's kind of robbed of all of his resources. And that was, you know, one of the joys of writing the book because Walt's a pretty resourceful individual. Like that, he's got some, you know, pretty wonderful capabilities and talents. And uh, no, not to say that he's any kind of a superman or anything like that, but he's he's pretty capable and he's pretty smart. Like that. But in this particular book, he's forced, you know, to go into this investigation, first of all, to find out who he is and why he's there. And then to try and like discover, you know, what it is that's going on and how to solve this problem. And he doesn't have any of his usual resources. He has absolutely nothing to go by. Um, you know, he's, he's got a gun that's missing a bullet. He's got blood on his clothes. Um, but that's about it. That's about as much knowledge as he has when he first starts out. Like, and so this was a completely different kind of situation for Walt Longmire too. Like, and a very unique opportunity to write him in a very, very different way, um, and to see, you know, what aspects of his character would stand up you know, to that inability or those, you know, that lack of resources. Um, and one of them I'm really kind of proud of is the fact that uh, he may not know who he is. He may not know why he's there. He may not even know where he is, but his moral code, the compass, you know, that he uses like uh, to make the decisions, you know, in his life and in these investigations is untampered. It's, it's truly a Northern star um, that he has like that, where he knows right from wrong. And he knows what it is that he needs to do, you know, uh, because of that. And that that made for a very unique situation, I think, for the book. Yeah. And before we do a reading here, just um, this setting here, uh, you deal with the uh, Native American schools where the children were taken from their parents and sort of forced into this environment uh, they didn't want to be in. It was very cruel. And, uh, you know, they were punished. They were murdered. Um uh, Fort Pratt, I believe, Richard Henry Platt, who's a brigadier general or something that uh, founded these schools. And I think you said his motto was kill the Indian, save the man. And, you, you know, you really dive deep mm-hmm. into this. Uh, and I wonder what else you could tell our listeners about sort of this horror that unfolded in the West and then also affected other parts of the country as well. Well, I think we're just now starting to really understand just how um, horrifying that situation may have been like that. Um, we're seeing a lot of the provincial schools up in Canada where they're finding um, these, you know, unknown burial grounds, you know, where, you know, hundreds, if not thousands, you know, of native children died 
um, in these schools. And, 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 and who knows, you know, were, were their parents ever notified? Was the tribe ever notified of what exactly had happened to these children or anything like that? I mean, you know, when you look at it, it's just a, a wholesale, you know, kind of genocide. And I think that, you know, Pratt's heart was in the right place, you know, because when he describes what it is that he was attempting to do, he was trying to give advantages uh, to Native youth, you know, through education, you know, through the law and through all of these things like that. But the practice of it, you know, really kind of fell extraordinarily short um, in giving them the advantages that, you know, maybe other, you know, members of the citizenry, you know, might have had like that. And uh, the true brutality of it, like that, I think is just now really kind of coming to the surface. Um, the difficulty, of course, is, is that, you know, you have the the hindsight of 2020 and dealing with that situation, or you have the horror of actually being there. And um, within that situation that I placed Walt in, it gave him the opportunity to kind of step back in that time period. And actually, whether he was there or whether he wasn't, you know, is, of course, you know, the, the prerogative of the reader at that point in time, you know, was it all happening in his mind or, you know, was he actually being influenced, you know, by the, you know, the place and the period and that Evo et say, hey, may say, um, the wandering without, like a, that takes those young souls away, like that. And what better feeding ground, you know, for something that, uh, that basically, you know, imbibes on souls like that than, you know, one of those boarding schools. Um, it was a, a horrific situation like that. And then the challenge became, okay, well, how do you portray it? You know, and how do you take a character, you know, from the modern day like that and have them, you know, be a part um, of that investigation into what exactly it was that had happened in Fort Pratt all those years ago when all those young men, uh, when all those boys had actually burned to death in that extraordinarily horrific fire, um, which was an instance that I actually took um, historically like that and, and utilized. Um, but anyway, like that, yeah, it, 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 you know, it made for, you know, something that was very, very different. Um, and that was, you know, like I said, you know, a, a bit of a joy to write, I have to admit like that, um, mm -hmm. it was hard. I'm not going to say it wasn't difficult like that because it was so different from all of the others that, you know, I really had to, to delve into that world like that and, and try some things like that, that, you know, maybe took me outside of my comfort zone as a writer a little bit like that. But once again, I, I think that that's you know, really kind of essential, you know, I mean, when mm -hmm. you're first starting out, I mean, you always want to, you know, use your, your strong suits, you know, you want to use the, the tools that are in your belt that you're sure of, like that, that you know that you have and that you can work with. Um, but then as the, the road gets a little longer, I think you need to experiment a little bit and try doing some things that are a little bit different. And, uh, and that's, that's one of the joys, you know, for me, like that, that, uh, that opportunity to maybe do something a little bit different with each one. Well, it's nice to know that uh, Walt Lomar can fight bad guys in all dimensions and all time periods. <laughs> 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 he's he's pretty capable, like, but he had some help. He, he had some help, like, between Virgil White Buffalo and and some others, like that. He he had some assistance, like that, as far as that was concerned, like that. And yeah, it was definitely a point in time where you're just not sure, like that, you know, because I had an awful lot of people who wrote me, like that, and they uh, they said, "Boy, I really wasn't sure if Walt was going to make it back. I didn't know if you were going to write any more Walt books or." if this was actually going to be the end, you know, of the series. And to be honest, you know, whenever you're writing a series of books, especially when the character, you know, the protagonist is, you know, a, you know, is involved with law enforcement, you know, or any kind of like, you know, the military, any kind of a dangerous, you know, involvement, you know, where their life is, you know, kind of on the line. Well, you know, then, then you got to play fair and you have to, you know, you have to tee up each one, of those books uh, with the idea that, okay, this might be the last one. 
you know, this might be the last one. You have to approach each and every one of those books as if, you know, okay, this, this might be the last one. And, uh, you know, that definitely was in the back of my mind, you know, whenever I was writing this particular book, but it wouldn't be the first time either. I've, I've had others where I've had that thought where I thought, Hmm, I don't know if he's going to make it or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awful nice as a writer to be able to not know for sure what the outcome is going to be because it keeps the uh, writer as surprised as the reader. So, Let's, uh, you get a little short reading you're going to do. I've got a few more questions after that, but uh, uh, I think you're going to read from okay. the beginning, beginning of the book. Yeah, I think I am like that. It, you know, it's always, you know, um, a tricky proposition whenever you're asked to read something from a murder mystery, because, you know, you never know if you're going to give something away or say something that's, you know, going to blow the book for somebody. And so generally <laughs> the safest thing to do is probably start from the very beginning of the book. So everybody's going to be in an equal footing like that. But then again, you know, um, it's a situation like that where, you know, you, you also get the idea of the book from the get go, I think, like, and particularly with this one, since it's a little bit different from any of the others before. Um, I should probably give you the, the quote that I have uh, at the beginning of this book is actually from uh, T.S. Eliot. Hell is oneself. Hell is alone. The other figures in it, merely projections. There's nothing to escape from and nothing to escape to. There was the sound of bells. And then the silence, the kind of quiet that only comes with snow, capturing the sound waves of life and smothering them before they can cry out. I couldn't open my eyes like something was weighing them down, so I brought my hand up to my face and brushed the snow away. My eyes worked now, so I tried to sit up, feeling something strike my chest, something small and metallic. A couple of somethings. Snow. A lot of it falling in static sheets, fat flakes covering everything, silencing everything as they cascaded from the yellowish-black sky. I was lying in the middle of the street. I started to stand but discovered that part of my sheepskin coat was frozen to the ground. Leaning over to the side, I noticed that there were two silver dollars in my lap, so I pulled a glove off with my teeth. I picked up one of the coins that were old ones but looked remarkably unsullied. I glanced around again, couldn't see anybody else on the street, so I figured finders keepers. I couldn't see anything else. I couldn't deposit them both into my pocket and then pulled the glove back on, tugging the tiny red beaded ends on the straps to snug it. I reached behind me and pulled my coat loose from the ice. I had at least been lying on the street long enough for it to freeze to the ground. Raising myself to a kneeling position, I felt something around my neck and pulled the material up to find a red scarf. It didn't particularly look like a man's scarf silky with a fringed edge, but with current conditions, I figured I didn't have a lot of options. Momentarily distracted, I saw a lump of snow beside me and reached over to find it was a pinch-front cowboy hat. I slapped it against my knee to knock it clean. Figuring it was also mine, I lifted it and tugged it on over my head. I felt a little tight, but that was probably from it being so frozen as it was. I stood the rest of the way and shook off the accumulated snow from my coat like a dog. I was at the top of a hill, which looked down a winding two-lane road that dropped off into a small town about a mile away. Turning, I could see the top of the hill was covered with tiny crosses encircled by a wrought iron fence, where, a little further off, the corner of a stone building still stood, shedding rubble into the snow, a large lump of which was centered on some sort of platform. Above a gate, I saw an arch with the words, Fort Pratt Industrial Indian Boarding School. There was some movement, 
but the apogee of the arch, and I watched as a great horned owl slowly swiveled his head from back to front to look at me, golden eyes shining like twin harvest moons. Howdy. He continued to observe me with all the patience of the world. Well, at least you didn't say who. <laughs> Sighing, I turned back towards the town, thinking I might get a little more conversation in that direction. Starting off down the two-lane, I lumbered through the snow for what eventually passed a few of the buildings on the outskirts, a house or two, a library, and what looked to be an old Catholic church. There were buildings on either side of the road, the type of single-story storefronts seen in many small towns scattered across the Rocky Mountain West. Plastic wreaths hung from the dozen or so lampposts with a red electric candle in each that flickered yellow and then, one at a time, slowly dimmed. I couldn't really tell if it was night or day with the skies colored a strange yellowish cast, and with the inclement weather, the surrounding existence was darkened into an ocean of obscurity. There were a few buildings, a two-story grand vintage structure to my left, the Baker Hotel, and a movie theater down on the corner with a yellow and green neon marquee that read, Support Your Local Sheriff. Well, there are a couple of things right off the bat. <laughs> um, you know, for those of knowledgeable, like in Western lore, like that, or just lore completely, like a, you know, whenever you wake up and you have two coins over your eyes, that's not a good sign. Like you know, most generally, I don't know if people are aware or not. Like, but there are two yeah. reasons for that. The first one being that back in the day, like that, um, you know, there, there really wasn't a lot of body preparation done. Uh, you know, whenever you died, like, and so one of the ways that they could make sure that they could close your eyelids. Um, without them flying open and disconcerting, I'm sure everybody in you know in in, in plain sight was as they would close the eyelid and then place a coin over them to for, so that the weight would hold you know the eyelid closed. Um, the other is that you know it, according to mythology or you know the, the the ancient Romans and Greeks like at you know well when you cross the river Styx like at to go into Hades like at after your death you had to pay the ferryman. And generally paying the ferryman meant two coins that you had to give up. Okay. So there's two indications right there that Walt's in a pretty dire situation, whether he's aware of it or not. And then to go even further like that, we can also look, and according to Northern Cheyenne lore, the messenger of the dead is the owl like that. And so for Walt to meet an owl, the very first thing, you know, when he rises up there from the ground, that's a little bit odd. The other thing is he's wearing a sheepskin coat that he hasn't worn since the cold dish, the very first book, um, and there's a, a sequence later on where he's, you know, the, the coat is damaged and they literally have to cut it off of him. So he no longer has that coat. That's no longer his. It doesn't exist. And so how could he be wearing a coat um, from five years previous that his dead wife had given to him? Um, it goes on. You know, I mean, he goes down the street, you know, and ends up in the, the main street there like that. And the only business that appears to be open is a little cafe, the Night Owl Cafe. like that. And uh, he goes in and uh, sits down like that. And uh, there's a woman that waits on him and he looks at her and she looks remarkably familiar. Um, he doesn't know her name, introduces him. You know, he said, he says, do you mind if I know your name like that? And she says, Martha. And that's strangely enough. And she looks remarkably like Walt's deceased wife. Um, and as he makes his way through that, that, that town of Fort Pratt that night, everyone that he meets, he's almost sure that they're dead. Um, and so what does that mean? Where is he and what is he doing in this town? And uh, what is it all? Where is it all going to lead? And uh, that's Helen back for you.
Well, yeah, I was thinking that if Rod Serling was still around, he could do a little trailer for you at the beginning of the, of the book there. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Like it, it definitely has a Twilight Zone kind of quality to it, like that where you're not, you're not quite sure, you know, what's going on or what's happening. Like it, but, you know, in, in many ways, you know, you learn more about a character when they're in on that thin ice, you know, when they're out there where they've never been before. I mean, we learn a lot about Walt, like in this book, like that we've not learned, you know, in 19 years, like And so, you know, for me, I think it's a real opportunity, you know, for the readers, like to get behind the character and find out things that maybe they never would have uh, would have known otherwise. Yeah, just just a quick craft question. I like to read craft books, and I ordered one called "How to Write a Mystery: A Handbook from Mystery Writers of America." And I'm flipping through it, and I notice, ah, Craig Johnson has written a. Uh, a piece here. It's called Supporting Characters, the Course of Voices that Backs Up Your Protagonist. And uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, in this book, we don't have as many supporting characters. Uh, we, we do have Vic, we do have uh, Henry Standing Bear, who are actually trying to find out what's going on. But can you just speak to this uh, theme here of the chorus of voices? Well, you're always going to have a situation where um, that chorus of voices, like, I mean, that, that is the way that I describe it. Like, in many ways, writing a novel is kind of like conducting a choral group. I mean, you have all of those voices there for a specific reason. Um, and you and I have done workshops together, like, you've heard this to death, like, but it always bears repeating um, in the sense that, you know, um, each one of those voices, I mean, whenever I'm talking to students and they're always like so completely wrapped up with the idea of what their character looks like, and I'm always looking at them and going, yeah, that really doesn't matter all that much really you're only going to describe them one time in a novel you're going to describe them once and then that's it you're not going to be able to describe them every time they come into the room or anything but they are going to speak they're going to talk all the way through this novel like and so where you need to put your energies is is discerning those voices making the differentiation in those voices so that not all of your characters sound alike and that they have a very specific voice unto themselves and so when you're composing a novel, in many ways, it's kind of like con conducting a choral group. You have all of these different voices and you have them all there for a specific reason. Um, and so, you know, you have to pick them very carefully. Like it, and, you know, that, that's how you cast that novel, you know, that, that you're doing. And, you know, they can be characters that, you know, that, that the people, you know, the readers have like grown to know and love, you know, over 20 years of reading you, or they can be absolutely new characters and be introduced to them like that, because that's the new blood that you're going to bring into every single novel like that. And that's really kind of a joy, to be honest with you. That's, that's kind of a fun thing to do like that and uh, see if you can get them involved with those new characters too, like that, because without new characters, once again, you're treading over, you know, the same old ground again like that. And so even though I do love circling back like and finding certain there's certain things out about characters that we thought with you but perhaps didn't know about this particular aspect of their character like that and bring that to the forefront in every novel like that but there's that ebb and flow of each character like that the two emails that I get to get after every novel comes out is a you beat up on Walt too much you need to take it easy on him in the next book um, which is very flattering like that because evidently they think Walt is real like that and I'm the one that's punishing him and doing horrible <laughs> things to him like that um and then the other one is there was not enough of my favorite character, insert name here, whether it was there's not enough Henry in that last book, there wasn't enough Vic in the last book, there was enough Lucian in the last book. And then I knew I got to a certain point whenever I started getting emails and said, you know, there really wasn't enough dog in the last book, you know, and so, you know, you just got to get used to the fact that it's going to be an ebb and a flow, like, because if there's the same amount of the same characters all the time, then you're basically writing the same book, like, and so that focus needs to change a little bit, like that. And so those support characters become extraordinarily important 
um, to the novel. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, that they are maybe more important than your protagonist, but the effect that they have on your protagonist and uh, the, 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 the complications that they provide, you know, and interactions and relationships um, for that protagonist, they're, they're essential, I think. Look at, and uh, they, they, they capture so much of the tone of each novel like that, which is for me, you know, one of the joys, like at the, each novel is going to have a little bit different tone than all of the others like that. It might be the same, you know, it might be the same, uh, same conductor like that, but the tone of the piece is going to be a little bit different each time. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think in the recent novel that I wrote, um, there was one character who tried to take over the entire, uh, <laughs> manuscript and he wasn't the protagonist and people seem to like him better than they like the protagonist you know so, so uh you know I, I get it it's 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 part of the process but uh, hey as we wrap up here um we're in the process of uh compiling a uh, a book of quotes actually it's going to be a series on the first four years of the podcast and i was looking back at the quotes and found a couple of tribute of you that'll be in the first book and one of them says my idea of hell is being stuck somewhere without a book and uh the other one says if you're the other one says if you're writing and you're counting the words you're kind of missing the point it's kind of like going on a trip and not looking out the window but staring at the odometer's little numbers as they click by that's just not my idea of a good time and so my question is do you still stand by these quotes absolutely a word for word absolutely like that um yeah the first one like that i mean i, I whenever anybody asks how did you become a writer like well i came from a family of readers you know i think that that's an essential part you know i mean if you want to be a writer you need to be a reader and i i don't think you lose that i think it's one of those important aspects i mean you know you you continue to read i mean there's always going to be a certain amount of reading that you're going to do um, you know, like blurb requests, like at manuscript reviews, things like that. Um, but then there's also the research that you're going to do like that, you know, with each book. Like, and I, I love it, you know, whenever people will write me and they'll say, you know, like, my gosh, you know, you seem so knowledgeable about this subject. Like where in the world? And I'm like, well, they have these places where they hide that kind of information. They're called books. Like, you know, and so, you know, you can go find those things like that and, and, and research them out. I mean, the Internet is great. Like the Internet is wonderful as far as like, you know, uh, doing research on like that, um, you know, documentary films like that, you know, and that's great too. like that. But my two number one sources are, are always books. I always love, you know, and, and I'm, that, I'm guilty like that. You know, I like buying books. I like reading books. You know, it's my own personal you know problem there that i have to deal with like that um and then the other one of course is like uh primary research material is going out and interviewing and talking to people who who really do you know have the the uh, the information that you need like that and that's primary research because you're talking to the person that knows this like that, that has that information and then you have the ability you know to to get that first you know response like that from them and that's a powerful thing i think like it and so for me, the reading is always going to be absolutely essential. And there's a second quote, as far as it's concerned, I'm always, I'm always amazed by it like that because people will ask me, especially, you know, writers like that, that are starting out, they'll be like, well, how many words do you do a day? And I'm like, I, I don't, I don't know. And they're like, well, how many pages do you write every day? I'm like, I, <laughs> I, I don't know. Look at, you know, I really don't pay that much attention. I have to be honest with you. I mean, I just get in there. It's like, it's kind of like sports, you know, in many ways, I think you get in there and, uh, you know, you're, you're in the zone, you know, and you're really enjoying what it is that you're doing. And, you know, if you're, if you're counting the words or counting the pages that you're working on, well, then you're not really paying attention to the important part of the story or the characters, you know, or the, it's, an, it's more of a question of the words you're using, not the, the amount of words that you're using, um, 
from what I'm to understand, I guess, you know, Dickens was paid, you know, per word, you know, and a lot of authors, you know, from, I guess, that period, that was the case. Luckily, that's not the case nowadays. Like, it, um, you know, you're paid for the quality of your words, not the quantity of your words. Like, it, not to say get anything away from Charles Dickens like that, but it's a different world and a different type of writing like that. And uh, so I, uh, I just don't pay much attention, I have to admit. Yeah, well, your words are uh, words I look forward to. Uh, every fall when you have a new book come out. And uh, so uh, when the next book comes out, uh, give us a, give us a ring or drop. So we'll get you back on, but I want to thank you for uh, coming on to talk uh, once again about you, about your writing. Will do the, the next one. Actually, we have a title and a release date. Like it's actually called uh, the Longmire defense. Um, and it'll be out on uh, September 19th, I think is the publication date. So look forward to seeing you guys then. <laughs> Sounds good. See you in the fall. Okay. <laughs> If you like what we're doing and would like to help us defray the costs of this podcast, please consider becoming one of our patrons through the Patreon website. For as little as $5 a month, say a coffee or a happy hour drink, you can help us out. And in return, we have a library of exclusive episodes, over 120, that you can access through the Patreon website. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Weir's podcast and join up. You can cancel any time, by the way, and we thank you in advance for whatever you decide to contribute. All right, uh, we're now in Act Two. Uh, this is our writing topic version of the show. Uh, we've got uh, a two-minute tip from uh, Charlotte Lipp, this time from Paul Reale. The title of the tip is Adding Detail to Your Writing. It's a three-part series. You're going to hear uh, part one, two, and three in the next three episodes. Uh, starting now with uh, this one, let's listen in. Hi, I'm Paul Reale from Charlotte Lit with a two-minute writing tip for Charlotte Readers Podcast. This is the first of three tips about adding detail to your writing. Good description is essential in prose, and it's a place many writers struggle. In my work as an editor, I see writers erring on both sides, too much or too little. When you provide detail, you're choosing what you want the reader to see. When you leave detail out, you leave the seeing to the reader's imagination. Both are needed, your imagination and the reader's. So how do you choose? Here are some things to consider. First, eliminate unneeded detail by relying on what your reader already knows. If you have a character walking through an airport, say, you can rely on the reader's experience of airports and leave out most of that detail. Second, ask yourself, well then, what does the reader need to see? They need to see what the point of view character sees and have it connected to why the character might notice such a thing. Back to the airport. Maybe the character's feeling afraid, so she notices a suitcase sitting by itself. Or maybe she's a thief, and she's looking for unwatched suitcases. Maybe she's a writer feeling imposter syndrome, so she notices her own novel on the paperback carousel in the gift shop because she was looking for it. Maybe she's having relationship issues, so she notices a couple showing affection she no longer fees for her own partner. Third, how do you know when you've gone too far? Here are a couple of ways to know. First, look for places where you find your own eye skipping over the text. Look for unbroken runs of detail that go a page or more. Or just ask your feedback group or beta readers. They'll tell you. Now, here's your action step. Look at any scene and ask, what does my point of view character notice and why? For more two-minute tips from Charlotte Lit, 
listen to beyond 300 episodes of this podcast or visit charlottelit.org slash tips. All right. Once again, a uh, thought-provoking tip from Charlotte Litt. That kind of rhymes, doesn't it? Thought-provoking tip from Charlotte It does. <laughs> a new series name. <laughs> there a new tag line there from, uh, all right. But, uh, okay, well, let's, uh, let's jump in. Sarah, your thoughts? Um, well, there's a lot of good food for thought here. I think as writers, sometimes we have a tendency to love detail. I know I do. And we're encouraged to write with as much detail as possible and imagine everything as fully as possible and, and put it all there on the page. And I like that Paul was pointing out, like, sometimes you can go too far with that. <laughs> More detail is not always necessarily better um, because it is a partnership with the reader when you're writing something. You're It's not possible to describe everything. So, of course, there's also going to be the reader's imagination and experiences and assumptions that are coming into it as well. Um, and so I, I like that he was encouraging us to actively take advantage of that and think about what the reader is already bringing to the table and how you can um, potentially use that so that you don't have to describe certain things or you can maybe play with their assumptions and with their preconceptions. Um, and yeah, I think he gave good advice too about getting feedback from beta readers or people in critique groups. Sometimes that's a good way of knowing sort of where you are in the in the spectrum of too much detail or not enough? Are people asking you questions and wanting to hear more about certain things? Or are they kind of losing interest at certain parts? And that might be a good place to cut. Um, so yeah, those are all good things to think about. Yeah, now Hannah, you're a, you've always been a voracious reader. Um, so when you pick up a book and start reading it, what annoys you when you get, uh, say, too much detail in the book? Oh my gosh. Well, I feel like I'm always saying this. I'm just like, I hate when there's just like a bunch of words in there. It's like, I don't even understand what half these words mean. (laughs) I mean, you know, I think a lot of the time it just, it kind of really does depend on the reader. It's sort of like you were just saying, Sarah, it's, it's like forming that relationship with the reader. You don't really know what every person who reads your book is going to be interested in. Cause there's some people, especially as writers, I don't know, some writers might be more interested in more detail. Um, it's, it's kind of just depends on who you are, but I think what happens is I, I love that he kind of brings up the fact that there can be like, there's two ends of the spectrum, right? So there's like too much detail and then there's not enough. Cause you can't really just like, have a half page chapter that just says like Marcy went to the mall. It was very fun. Like, why was it fun there? (laughs) Like, you know, you kind of have to like have something in there. So I feel like, I don't know. It's, it's definitely, I, I, I agree with the whole, you know, getting feedback on your writing, especially with big groups of people. Like if you're in writing groups, it's sort of a great way to just see like, what is most likely the reader going to be interested in? Um, I think just to answer your question, Linus, like what annoys me when I'm reading a book is really just when I'm like run on sentences describing something for like, you know, three quarters of a page drives me insane. You know, it's just like, I'm like, all right, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> I think another thing to think that you can draw from this is uh, it, it, first of all, re- readers are smarter than, we, we writers sometimes think they are. We don't have to spell everything out for them, number one. And number two, it's a little bit in the delivery of, of the detail. And that's where Paul's getting to the point of view character. Um, it's really how you're going to deliver certain details. You don't want it to be encyclopedic, of course. And you don't want it to be details that are not necessary to moving the story forward. But he gave some examples of the kind of details that would be interesting, depending upon what's in the head of mm-hmm. the particular point of view is this character running from someone and if so do they see something over there in the corner that tells them 
in the mirror that somebody's catching up to them or that, you know, something else is happening in their life. Like he said, uh, uh, the romantic liaison has gone south for them, but they see a couple over there holding hands. These are the kind of details that I think bring the, bring the scene alive. So it's really kind of jumping into your point of view character. I, th- I think it's what makes the, the scene interesting, not a sort of pull away omniscient, let's tell the world everything you need to know about what happened in 1775, you know? So yeah, that, those are some of my thoughts. Uh, good stuff and appreciate the the tip from uh, Charlotte Litt. And now we're going to, not that Paul, I mean, Paul's not as old as I am and you know, not that he's old or anything, but we're going to have a really young writer now. I mean, we're going to have, yeah, this is awesome. we're going to have a teenage author on and that's, uh, that's amazing to me that uh, we're going to do mm-hmm. that. So, when we come right back in just a moment, uh, we're going to hear from uh, Sydney Horn uh, and her blog post. If you are an author who would like to be featured on the show, check out our submission process on the contact page of charlottemeterspodcast.com. Please understand that given the number of submissions we receive, we can't respond to every submission or feature everyone who submits. But with the Beyond 300 format, we are featuring more authors in many different ways. You might be interviewed or provide us some audio content for us to play or participate in an author or marketing talk or get a shout out for your publication. One way to be sure to get a mention on the show is to submit a 750 word or less blog post to our community blog on a writing or marketing topic. If it's accepted, we may have you on to discuss the content. Just go to charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the community blog for details. All right. Uh, we've got a blog post here um, with uh, Sydney Horn. Um, and before we talk about the title and the, uh, and her bio, I just want to say, you know, go to the show notes and check out her website. And if you're an author, uh, you should be embarrassed to make yours better. <laughs> <laughs> we got a teenage author here that's doing all the right things and, and, and she's just starting out and she's written in poetry and she's written other places. She's got a book coming out this year and she's got a nice website. So she's doing all the right things. And, uh, Tell us, tell us about uh, Sydney, sir. Yeah, so like you said, she's a teenage author, which is so cool. She lives in Charlotte. Um, she's always had a passion for books, which evolved into a love for writing fiction and poetry. She attended the Young Writers Conferences at Sewanee University, and her first novel comes out in September of this year called A Shattered World. It's so cool that she already has a novel coming out at that age. That's amazing. Yeah, and uh, tell us about the novel, Hannah. Yeah, it's called A Shattered World, and it's a dramatic and moving young adult novel told from the eyes of Eleanor, a 14-year-old who struggles to find her voice after losing her twin sister to cancer. Also, like the subject matter, too. I mean, this I I love this person. Yeah. <laughs> She's going so deep. <laughs> That's right. Already, already. Well, uh, her t- the title of her post is Cautious Creativity. Let's listen in, and then we're going to talk about it. Cautious Creativity. Writing is a release. At least for me, it always has been. I can speak my mind and pour raw, untapped emotions into stories. I can twist and mold the words however I want to make it say what I want. To be able to make a scene come alive in a reader's mind is one of my most prized talents, as I'm sure it is for every author. We can change the sentence, I walked through the woods, to I treaded lightly across the forest floor, not wanting to disturb the wildlife around me. I winced with every step as my feet crushed the freshly fallen leaves, the weeds and plants tickling my legs as I brushed past them, and a soft breeze caressed my cheek. I do my best to make my writing stand out, put my own style on it, or make a new saying. Anything to make it just a little bit different. Every time I sit down to write, I ask myself, how is this piece going to be different? 
A lot of the times I get stuck and another question pops into my mind. How do you force creativity? I've always done my best work when I'm not even thinking about writing. My creativity comes in waves and I never learned how to force it. An idea will pop into my head and my mind takes off on its own, weaving a story and trying to move my fingers fast enough to keep up. Soon my fingers will be flying across the keyboard. I finish up my last thought and that's it. The ideas stop, my fingers halt, hovering over the keys of my computer. The cursor will sit, blinking and mocking me. My once frantic mind is as blank as my computer screen. The twists and turns that float so rapidly from my mind to my fingers in one fluent motion have stopped. As writers, our creativity gives us our individuality, our techniques. From our creativity flows our ideas and our inspiration. The question I've been asked the most about my book is what inspired you to write this? Everybody wants to know where my idea came from, but the truth is it wasn't anything special. When I was a little kid, I loved to write short stories just for fun. Every single story was based on some random idea that popped into my head. Once I had where I wanted to start, my mind would take control and write until it ran out of things to write about. I have to admit, I would love to ask any of my favorite authors how they came up with the ideas that would go on to become a best-selling book. It seems that most authors are able to answer that pretty quickly. Maybe they had a personal experience that sparked an idea, or they thought of a long-lost nostalgic memory. For me, nine times out of ten, my inspiration is my imagination. As a teenage author, I've gotten a head start on my writing journey. However, I'm still years behind most people doing the same thing I'm doing. We live in a world that pressures you to be the same as everyone else. You have to fit in and be unison. Writing gives us an out, a way to be different, and a way to make a difference to everyone around you. But that would be even better is to make a difference in the life of a writer. To have your work stand out to others who could quite possibly have more experience than you and have written hundreds of more stories. What about your work stood out to them? Your creativity. Your creativity that told you exactly what word to use and why. Your ideas that made it different, that made it unique, that made it yours, your work, your work that stood out and made a difference. That is perhaps the most important thing I have learned on my writing journey. In a world that pressures you to be the same as everyone else, find a way to make your writing, and most importantly, make yourself stand out. All right, that's uh, a lot of inspiration coming from a young author there uh and as I'm yeah. Listening, yeah as i'm listening to that i'm thinking about our series folks you know we've got uh we have a whole book that's going to be devoted to inspiration we've had all these authors talk about where they get their ideas from and they're channeling some of what she says but as i recall from that book uh a lot of authors don't know where their ideas come from they just sort of uh drop <laughs> out of the uh, heavens uh <laughs> yeah. sometime. but but some of them have said you know what though Unless you're there, open to be able to accept it, it's not going to find you, you know. And so mm -hmm. it's all about sort of sitting down and being being open to it. And being, but what, what jumps out, I'll start with you, Hannah, this time. What jumps out at you about uh, Sydney's uh, blog post, Cautious Creativity? You just mentioned um, thinking about the series, the right quote series. I feel like there was a bunch of different things in there. I was like, wow, that would be a great quote. Like she goes, my imagination is my inspiration, which I think is just such a cool thing to say. And also what I love about this post too, she's giving herself a lot of credit, you know, and where credit is due. She's come up with these ideas. She's kind of, um, she knows that she's a writer at her core and she just kind of listened to her creativity her entire life. So it's like for her, this is just sort of like, this is just who she is. So writing, being a writer is part of who she is. And it's, um, I think every writer 
should think of it like that and just give themselves credit for being able to listen to their creativity because a lot of people don't know that they need to need to do that or they don't do that or and you and I think it shows in writing in in the books so um I love her confidence I think she's just going to be such a I mean she already is a cool person but I can't wait to see just the kind of stuff she writes about moving forward because if she's a teenager right now (laughs) I'm like okay so what is adult Sydney going to be like (laughs) you know like I can't wait to find out so I, I love this pose it was great yeah and you know as you're thinking through some of this stuff um with the series uh and all these other authors. I mean, the good news is that uh, Sydney will be in here because uh, the series features not only the interviews, but the blog posts that we had up and published before January 31, 2023. And hers was, in fact, that. So uh, you can tap into some of her wisdom in these books, too. Um, there, there were some questions she asked, uh, you know, about forcing creativity and uh, uh, not just and also pressure and that kind of thing. What are your thoughts, Sarah? Yeah, well, I I like how she captured that you can't really force creativity. I mean, she was very honest about the fact that sometimes she'll sit down and it just flows and it feels like it's all pouring out of her fingertips onto the page. And then sometimes that just stops. And you also can't force ideas, you know, like, like Hannah was mentioning that quote about my imagination is my inspiration. I love that. Like, I think it's really cool that she's able to just own that because I know, at least for me as a writer, that's, that's often true. Like, I have ideas that just kind of come out of my imagination and I don't quite know where they come from, but I always feel pressure when people ask, what was your inspiration for such and such to have a good answer for that, to be able to say Mm -hmm. like, oh, it was based on my great grandmother or whatever. And sometimes that's just not true. Like you don't really know where inspiration is going to come from. Sometimes it just comes from this weird cocktail in your brain (laughs) and you can't force it and you can't control it. And, And that's I think one of the really wonderful things about being a writer, though, is how you get this, these ideas and you don't even know where they come from. Um, so that's a great thing to just own the way that she does. And I also really liked she had a line in there about um, when she sits down to write, she asks herself, how is this going to be different? And I think that's a really great question to ask yourself, like both how is it going to be different from things that I've written previously and how is it going to be different from what other people have written or what else is already out there on the marketplace? Um, and she she really went into that at the end, too, about owning what makes you different, what makes you stand out and what makes your writerly voice unique. Um, so I think that those are those are really good questions to ask yourself as you're approaching a project from the outset. Yeah. And she also asked um, well, the question about, uh, you know, what uh, what makes you unique or what makes you stand out. And that's a good thing for authors to think about. Uh, you, you don't want to write the novel that everybody else has written. Start thinking about you know, where you can put your voice, what you can do. Good news is for Sydney is, you know, she already is standing out and she's as young as she is, Mm -hmm. as Hannah said. She can't wait to see what, uh, you know, adult Sydney looks like. Uh, Either can I. So, all right. Well, congratulations there to Sydney for what you're doing and appreciate uh, that feedback. Great great to have that discussion here on the podcast. Uh, Let's hear about the newsletter. We're going to jump into Act 3 and hear a few book recommendations. We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, leandiswade.com, saraharcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. All right, uh, we got uh, our book recommendations now, uh, 60 seconds of book. Go, Sarah. 
So lately I've been listening to Liar, Dreamer, Thief by Maria Dong. I listened to it on Libro.fm. And this was a really cool and kind of unusual book. It tells the story of this young woman who um, she she works at an office and there's a man who she works with who she's kind of stalking (laughs) in a way, but she... Um, she starts to learn things about him that she didn't expect and he goes missing and she's trying to figure out what happened there. Um, She also lives a lot of her life in her imagination and in this imaginary world and she has some mental health issues going on. So she's a bit of an unreliable narrator. Sometimes you don't really know what's real and what isn't. And the story was just really cool and twisting and went in all these different ways you wouldn't expect. And I think that she was a very interesting narrative voice to engage with. Um, so yeah, I, I really enjoyed this and I would definitely read something else by this author, Maria Dong. All right. What you got, Hannah? That sounds really good. I feel like I would love that. <laughs> um, yeah, I love that. Um, so I am reading Spare by Prince Harry. I'm joining like the entire globe and their current obsession with the royal family. But it's, it's funny. I went into Barnes and Noble one day, um, and I was looking for children's books. I'm like, all right, I, I love right now. I'm just like reading to Gwen all the time. Um, and so I, was, I went in there for that. And then I see this big display table with Prince Harry's face everywhere. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to be one of those people that buys this book. <laughs> and then I was like, mm, yes, I am. So <laughs> I bought it and it is really, really good. It's like a juicy book kind of like because it's written very much as if he was like, writing in his diary i'm actually kind of surprised at how like emotional it is um and it's also really like upsetting to just everything with princess diana and how that affected him and his brother and just like the royal family i feel like i'm learning a lot about how that whole ordeal works and you're just sort of like wow sort of crazy like over here you know and i'm kind of getting into the whole Meghan markle stuff and i realize there's like house divided on all that so it's i feel like it's a very um yeah, it feels like a like a juicy, uh, I don't know, book club read. I don't, it's just it's kind of a different experience, but I'm enjoying it. I, I just I grew up visiting the UK because my dad's from over there, so it's kind of interesting to me to like read about all this stuff that I just didn't really realize was happening with uh, their politics and the royal family and all that kind of stuff. So I'm I'm gonna recommend it <laughs> against uh-huh. what I <laughs> would have thought for myself. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, Prince Harry, if you're listening, Hannah would like to interview you so you oh, can go I to our to... submission page. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. I used to have a keychain. I used to have a crush on him, yeah. and I had a keychain with his face on it when I was oh like gosh. ten. So <laughs> <laughs> you aren't going to get out of that store without buying yeah. that book. <laughs> yeah, no way. I thought I could, couldn't do it. <laughs> He's still <All> cute. Right. <laughs> okay, well, I got a series of books I'm going to recommend this uh, over the next uh, four episodes here that were. Uh, gifts I asked for. People said, you know, Landis, what do you want for Christmas? I don't know what I want. Well, okay, I'll ask for some writing books. I asked for three or four writing books that people had recommended. And, and so one of the ones I asked for is The Emotional Craft of Fiction by Donald Moss. And um, I've kind of thumbed through that a little bit. I like it. It's uh, interesting. We talked about emotion on the podcast before. We'll do it again. Uh, interesting thing is, uh, <laughs> I'm sure my family's not listening, so just don't tell them, though, that I already have one that's sitting right over there. <laughs> I'd forgotten that I'd ordered it, and I was going to read it at some point. So now if I lose one, I can find the other. Anyway, and, and maybe I'll just give it away to somebody. Yeah, give it, it to them know. next year for Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Well, you to, uh, to another writer. Okay. Uh, well, let's hear, uh, let's hear what uh, Mark West is recommending this week. Hello. This is Mark West with the Storied Charlotte blog. 
I want to recommend a book that was published 50 years ago this year. That is published in 1973. There were a lot of important books that came out in 1973, including Ruby Fruit Jungle by Rita Mae Brown. Ruby Fruit Jungle is widely considered to be one of the first literary lesbian novels published in the United States. It was Brown's first novel, and she has since gone on to publish many more. I highly recommend Ruby Fruit Jungle. It follows the story of a character named Molly Bolt from her childhood to her early adult years. It's a very realistic and positive portrayal of the life of a young lesbian. I highly recommend it. Yeah, so it's funny. I was emailing Mark uh, West about this because he sent uh, his next three recommendations of this month are all going to be books uh, from 50 years ago. And so I said, well, I said, what's going on 50 years ago, you know? <laughs> and so apparently he was in college and he said he was doing a lot of reading and he emailed back and says, what were you doing in 1973? Well, in 1973, I was a junior in high school and I'm going to have to say I wasn't working on my books like Sydney was. <laughs> it was not on my mind at the time. <laughs> I was doing stupid junior and high school stuff, you know, so uh, anyway. anyway, we're going to hear some more. Although I did say that, you know, he talked about band. I said, uh, yeah, I went to a Doobie Brothers concert in 1973 at the old Charlotte Coliseum. So that's one thing I did in 1973. That's pretty cool. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. But uh, I don't know, getting, getting me to read a book, uh, in high school that wasn't forced on me. That was not, that was hard. <laughs> Dang. I'm actually surprised to hear that. I feel like you, you would know, have been a super avid reader. I, I, in high sort school. Of burst, I, I busted out more in college, you know, when I would have time to read and beach. And a lot of times when I, with young family too, we'd go to the beach, I'd read a lot there too. So just to get away from reading law stuff. So, uh, it sort of picked up. I, I just, I'm, I'm gradually gaining steam folks. Eventually I'll get there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we got a little uh, elevator pitch this week, and uh, um, I think we probably have reminded them earlier, but uh, who wants to remind people about this great thing we're doing for authors? Uh, have at it, Sarah. Sure. So um, we've been featuring some elevator pitches from authors, which is great. It's a really easy way to get some free publicity for your book. You can go onto our website. I think it's on the contact tab, but it's pretty easy to find. Um, and you can just record an audio clip where you tell us in about 30 seconds a little bit about your book, what it's about. Um, think of it kind of like the, the back cover blurb for a book, like just enough to hook people without telling the whole story. Um, so it's a good good kind of practice to figure out the essence of your story and how to pitch that to people. And we've really been enjoying playing those for our, our listeners. Yeah, and it's hard to do. I know, Hannah, you work with uh, clients all the time, and it's like bullet down, bullet down, bullet down. You know. Yeah, and, uh, it's definitely it's not, a process. <laughs> it not, takes like a long time not, to make sh things shorter. <laughs> if I had more time, I'd write you a shorter letter. Yeah. That's right. Uh, so let's hear uh, D.V. Stone has uh, submitted an elevator pitch. Let's listen in. 
I'm D.B. Stone. Sea Hunter is part of a seven-author series. My story is a historical romance with paranormal elements about Zara Corbin, an underwater archaeologist trying to resume her life after World War II. But when an attack has her thrown overboard, she struggles to return to the sea she loves. That is, until an ancient mortar and pestle and pieces of a missing map come into her hands. Zara finds herself working with a handsome treasure hunter to thwart a looter of antiquities, a daunting task not only because of a criminal, but a pirate ship that doesn't want to be found. Okay, well, she she had the stopwatch on because she was yeah. moving fast. Yeah, she used that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she did. A lot, a lot of good stuff in there. Yeah, a lot of good stuff. Yeah, uh, no, that sounds sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. Thank you, uh, TV, for submitting that, and and to others who want to do that. As Sarah said, just go to the uh, website, uh, click on the link, and uh, it's easy to record it, and it comes straight to us. Uh, when you do it, you can do it on your phone or your computer, and uh, and we'll get it and we'll load it on the podcast. So. All right. Well, that uh, we're coming to an end of another uh, fun episode here. Um, Sarah, can you tell us what's coming next? Sure. Coming up next time, we're going to feature Jay Ward, who is Charlotte's inaugural poet laureate and a national slam champion, talking about his um, beautiful new poetry collection called Composition. We also feature George Harold Trudeau, author of The Jesus of Jericho, The Good Samaritan in the Public Square, um, who's going to be sharing his blog post, The Power of Reading Out Loud, Feeling the Magic Again. And then we're also going to have a thought-provoking Charlotte Lit two-minute tip, um, continuing this series on detail and putting detail into your writing. Plus, we'll have elevator pitches and book recommendations and more. All right, yeah, we just did a little video recently, and uh, I think Hannah nailed it more than any of us in terms of what our closing comments are. You want to share, Hannah? What is it? Is it's it's yeah, read like on. read on, write on, rock on, yeah, <laughs> or something. I don't know. I remember the fist pound, but like, I don't right. know. I'm okay, black folks, out. <laughs> so, thanks for spending some valuable time of uh, yours with us today. And uh, as Hannah says, read on, write on, and rock on. <laughs>